Exploring the intersection of medicine, sports, and pop culture. This is the Doctors Are People Too podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Josh Belfer. So you went through medical school around third year as you're doing your clinical rotations. We all have to decide what we're going to go into. Yes. You mentioned that you thought about surgery. What was your path eventually to anesthesia? So um, when I was younger, uh, I thought I wanted to do surgery because I just love working with my hands. So, you know, building things. Um, But then I was like, nah, you know, maybe, maybe not. And then I started really getting interested in cardiology. Um, You know, like I mentioned, my mom got me this, you know, book about the heart when I was a kid and I was all gung-ho about that also. And then I was like, I think I want to do cardiology. And then I found out that you have to do three years of internal medicine first. And I was like, maybe cardiology is not for me after all. The way I discovered anesthesia was totally by accident. You know, it was kind of like a fluke thing. It was an elective. And I was like, you know, I don't really know much about it. Um, let me just do it. It was my first rotation of my third year, actually. And, uh, you know, I did it. And I was like, oh, this is actually really interesting. You know, you get to do some stuff. You, you, you know, you're in the operating room and... You know, you're thinking about things that happen quickly and you have to react quickly. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of practical aspects to it. And kind of the more I thought about it and the more I experienced it, you know, throughout my third year um, and throughout my fourth year, um, you know, even during surgical rotations, you know, if there was nothing to do during a surgery for me, um, you know, I would go and, and talk with the anesthesia provider, whether it was a resident and attending or a CRNA. And kind of the more I found out about it, the more interested I became. And uh, at some point, I guess, during the middle of my third year, I decided that that's what I want to do. And uh, the rest is history, as they say. I would love to do a study, and I've thought about this before. At what point of your clinical rotations that you do the thing that you eventually choose to go into? Because a lot of people do know or do have a sense of what they want to go into. I went into pediatrics. I knew I wanted to do pediatrics going through the rotation only solidified that choice in my mind. But for you to do Mm -hmm. anesthesia, the first rotation, I I would imagine there were some questions as you went through about, do I like this because I really like it? Or do I like this because it was my first rotation? I was excited to be in the hospital. I'm starting to feel like a real doctor, but that continued exposure, I guess, was what kind of drew you back to it. Yeah, you know, definitely the continued exposure. And if you think about it, you know, there's there's a lot of things that you have to be familiar with. So like as an anesthesiologist, you know, or for example, like as an internal medicine doctor, you know, I don't know how much, um, you know, they need to know about preeclampsia and, you know, fetal heart monitors and stuff like that. As an anesthesiologist, I need to know about that. Um, you know, as as a surgeon, you know, I don't know how much you need to know about diabetic management. As an anesthesiologist, I need to know about all that. So it kind of, you know, you're kind of like a jack of all trades in terms of, you know, being familiar with pretty much everything. Um, and, you know, I guess the, the, the main trade-off is, you know, maybe a lack of a long-term relationship with, uh, you know, a patient or a family if you choose to go, you know, in that direction. Um, but I think the major benefit is, you know, you get to know a lot of people, you work with a lot of subspecialists, and you're exposed to a lot of different things. And so that constant mental stimulation um, is something that definitely attracted me to the field. I can relate to that in the world of pediatric emergency medicine. Pediatrics, you have to know a lot about children and that falls into different specialties as well. But the pediatric ER, 
you don't know what's going to come in next. It may be the sickest patient on any given night. You may see the sickest patient you may see in your entire career. You know, similar to you, you may walk into the OR and tomorrow have the sickest patient and the most acute case you're ever going to see in your career. And you need to be ready for that, which is a difficult mindset. And as I work on a day-to-day basis, that thought's not always in the front of my mind, but I think it's always lingering in the back of my mind, which is motivating in terms of studying, in terms of keeping up on the literature, in terms of asking questions, especially as a trainee, but also I'd imagine as, as a, a junior attending, as you are, asking those questions to more senior people because you don't know what you're going to be facing. Definitely. You know, um, you know, as a quick example, you know, I where the place that I trained, you know, we never did um, liver transplants. And so, you know, the, the current my current place of employment, you know, we do do liver transplants and we do have an advanced uh, heart failure program. Um, and so definitely when I, you know, was first starting out, um, I was asking them for advice, you know, what do you know about this? How can I improve that? Um, also being, being in the inner city here in Philadelphia, you're always, 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 um, you must be ready for uh, trauma. You must be ready for, uh, you know, uh, massive transfusion. You must be ready for, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, you have to be ready for anything that they might throw at you. Um, so definitely it, it keeps things interesting. It keeps you humble also because you never know and, uh, nothing is guaranteed. You know, you might've intubated a million people and for whatever reason, you know, you weren't expecting a difficult intubation and it's difficult and there's nothing you can do about it. And kind of knowing and learning how to deal with, you know, crisis situations in an appropriate and, a and, um, in an organized manner, that's the most important thing I think that you can learn um, being an attending uh, and being an anesthesia attending in particular as well. A few weeks ago when I had Dr. Tiffany Moon on, I, I told you this off air, but I was thinking about you when I told the story of my anonymous friend who's an anesthesiologist. <laughs> Looking back at the conversations we had as you went through your medical training, obviously I was going you know, sort of in parallel in terms of my medical training, but before your first year in residency, then I remember you saying that you were very stressed out just about any case that you didn't know how you were going to do. You didn't know how you were going to adjust to the situation. And then a year later, almost exactly a year later in the summer when we met up, I can remember the restaurant we were at in Philly, that you were very stressed out about doing cardiac cases as a second year. And I was able to have that unique perspective of hearing you one year after you started residency and told you, you know, when we spoke a year ago, you were concerned about every single simple case, quote unquote, simple case, because there's never a simple case. But now you're worried about the cardiac cases. You're worried about the complex cases. Look how far you've come. As you look back at that training, your first couple of years of residency, and I'll refer back to what I said to Dr. Moon also, that anesthesia is unique in terms of the autonomy that residents get as compared to some of the other, certainly surgical specialties, but also some of the other general medicine, even pediatrics as a specialty. There is a lot of a lot of autonomy given pretty early on in training. How is your experience adjusting to a residency and taking on that responsibility 
maybe even as a first year being alone in the operating room as the only person who has some sort of anesthesia qualifications, even if it was only a couple months of training. Questionable anesthesia credentials at that point. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm actually very impressed that uh, you remember that conversation. I remember it, uh, but, uh, you know, I'm touched that you remember it as well. And definitely, you know, like you mentioned, when I was uh, a junior resident, so that means a CA1, uh, you know, I, you know, I was lucky if I maybe 50% of the time got, got an intubation adequately on the first time. <laughs> um, so, you know, as you said, you know, there's this kind of sort of, we call it graduated autonomy where, you know, the more you kind of prove yourself um, capable and um, competent, um, the more that people start trusting you. Um, I think most residencies, if I'm not mistaken, they kind of pair you up with a senior resident the first month or two. Um, and just to make sure that, you know, you don't do anything horribly wrong. Um, but, you know, it's still during that, during that time, you know, it's my responsibility the night before to call the attending and say, hey, this is my plan. And, you know, stressing over, you know, the smallest things or looking back on it now that things that may seem insignificant, but at the time are obviously important. Um, so definitely, you know, the more, the more trust that people put in you, the more pressure I felt a little bit on myself to kind of make sure that, you know, I was doing the best I could and preparing the best I could, because like it or not, essentially there's a person who is uh, pretty much their life is in your hands. Uh, uh, and so if you think about it that way, it's a pretty, pretty gargantuan responsibility. Um, uh, you know, we try to, you know, be lighthearted most of the time, but I think that's, kind of a little bit of a defense mechanism of, of trying to kind of dispel a little bit of the stress that might, that might occur. Uh, I think another thing that I never really thought of until I became an anesthesia resident is that, at least in my experience, nothing really prepared me for anesthesia residency because you're essentially the bedside nurse and the bedside physician for this, you know, single patient for, you know, however long the surgery is. And, you know, all the practical aspects, nobody ever taught me about that, you know. So, like, I remember one of my, <laughs> one of the first anesthetics I gave, you know, I didn't realize that once you punch a hole in the bag, like, it's going to spill if you, if, you, if you hold it right side up, uh, if you don't put the tubing in. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's what that is. And so, like, you know, I'm sure probably everyone has had that. I, I forgot one time to, you know. Uh, put a stopcock the right way. And so the patient started bleeding. <laughs> so I'm sure, you know, people have have had that, you know, experience. But, you know, as you grow more and more competent, like I said, you know, people will start trusting you more and more. Um, and then once you realize that you have a pretty significant responsibility, at least in my opinion, anyone who uh, who is a responsible person should take that responsibility very, very seriously. There are a couple of directions I want to go, and I'm trying to figure out the best one to go in. One of the things that I've thought about is a patient's view of a training hospital and having trainees involved in their care. Mm. As a pediatric resident, there were times, particularly in the ER, I think, because you had direct supervision, pediatric emergency medicine fellows, pediatric emergency physician attendings, who the patients know are going to see them and need to see them in most cases. And I was sometimes a little bit brushed off when they knew they wanted, they wanted to get care quicker. They could ask for the attending right away. I don't want to speak with you as a resident. Mm -hmm. 
And then I think of you as an anesthesia resident where there's not really that option because like you're saying, as an anesthesia resident, you do get a lot of autonomy in terms of of really being the head of care with supervision, of course, because you are a trainee, but being able to have a little bit more autonomy than maybe I had. And I, I do struggle with that balance of trainees are always going to make mistakes. That is part of the learning process for anything. No one is going to be perfect. And it's just a matter of being knowledgeable and being responsible enough and dedicated to providing the care that you need to provide to make sure that those mistakes stick to only being, you know, a stopcock being put on wrong that could be quickly adjusted. How do you manage, what are your thoughts on on that balance in terms of being a trainee involved in a patient's care, knowing that from our perspective, we need that training, but from a patient's perspective, you know, why would I want a trainee doing anesthesia on me? I want the attending who's been doing this for his whole life or her whole life. No, that's that's a really good question. Um, you know, I remember when I was uh, a resident, you know, I spent a lot of time on um, OB. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the mainstays and staples of OB is, you know, epidurals and spinals. And, you know, sometimes there were, uh, you know, pregnant women who said, you know, I only want um, an attending doing my epidural. You know, what can you say to that? You can't say anything to that. Um, but like you mentioned, you know, if... My first time, obviously, you know, I had my attending, like, essentially, like, place their hands on mine and be like, this is what you feel, and this is how you do, and um, and this is how you deliver this, uh, you know, um, procedure safely. Um, and so as you do more and more, you know, you become more and more competent. That being said, you know, if there was anything I was ever uncomfortable with, I would never, ever, ever do it alone. So, you know, I remember there was uh, a time where, I felt really uncomfortable doing gay lines by myself. And so, you know, I had my attending do it with me the first, you know, couple of days. And then they were like, listen, you have to be able to do it on your own and this and that. And so, you know, I went to seek out one of my um, senior residents um, who was two or three years older than me. And I said, hey, you know, I just, I know, I know what to do, but I just, you know, I don't feel comfortable doing it quite by myself yet. Do you mind just helping me and making sure that, I'm doing everything right. Everything is sterile. Everything, you know, the number one thing as a physician is do not cause harm. So if you, you know, they say sometimes the most dangerous part of anesthesia residency is towards the end of your second clinical anesthesia year where you've been exposed to most of the subspecialties and you're like, ah, I got this. Um, invariably, you'll be humble. Invariably, you won't quite know what to do. Invariably, you know, something will happen where you don't quite know how to address it. And so I think real strength comes in knowing your own weaknesses. So if you know that you don't know something, always seek out help. So, you know, even now, you know, um, back in training, you know, I did a certain amount of, uh, you know, peripheral nerve blocks. But then for the last two years, I haven't really done much of them because, you know, I was focusing on doing a fellowship in cardiac anesthesia where, you know, you don't do any knee surgeries and you don't do any shoulder surgeries. Um, uh, so, you know, for almost two years, I didn't do any of those blocks. And then, you know, all of a sudden, sometimes I'm thrown in a, in a general, uh, OR room where it's like, okay, well, this guy needs a block. So if there's any time that I feel uncomfortable or I don't recognize a landmark, whatever the case might be, you know, I always call someone who's more experienced than me or who has, you know, advice or a better technique than me. 
I think that's really important to know when you're when you don't know something or when you're not sure about something. And because, you know, again, our number one job is actually do no harm. So I think that's very important to keep in mind. The word or words that come to mind is self-insight. And there is this interesting balance because as a physician, and especially when you have the potential to be thrown into situations where you need to act quickly or something very bad can happen, you need to have confidence. And you need to tell yourself, if this happens, I can do this. But at the same time, you need to have that self-insight to tell yourself at in certain situations, even as an attending, and I see my attendings when they're unsure of something, be able to have the self-insight and ask someone else, am I doing the right thing? Is this something that you would do? And it's that particular balance of knowing, yes, I can do or I can feel like I can do whatever I need to do to save this patient should it come to that. But I also have the self-insight to know when I need to seek help. I think one of the interesting parts about medicine is that it's, some would say it's hierarchical in terms of the, the levels of care, the levels of training that people have. But I think that also serves to train us to have mentors and to have people that we could look to to ask those certain questions to. I 1000% agree with you. And, you know, actually it's funny that you mentioned that, you know, a couple of weeks ago I had this um, cardiac case, well, actually a couple of months ago, I had this cardiac case and, you know, everything seemed to be going fine, like no problems. And then, you know, all of a sudden patients started decompensating pretty quickly. And I was like, I don't, you know, I don't know what happened, you know, this acute change. Um, and, uh, you know, I was talking about with the surgeon, I was telling him what I see on the echo, like, you know, literally a minute ago, like there was, it was totally fine. And then now all of a sudden there's this big, big problem. You know, there's a significant amount of mitral regurg, you know, we don't know what's going on. Um, and so, you know, well, we talked about it together. Do you think it's X? Do you think it's Y? Do you think it's Z? And, you know, we ended up, you know, coming to a certain amount of agreement and, you know, thank God the patient did well and, and, you know, we recovered, but, it's funny that you mentioned mentors. You know, I still keep in touch with a lot of my attendings from where I trained. And, you know, I took pictures of all the echo clips and I was like, what do you think this was? You know, do you think it was this? Do you think it was that? And, you know, they came up with different answers, but, you know, it's that idea of being able to have an open discussion and doing the best that you can. Um, and you might not always have the, the right answer, but you must know that you did your best not to harm the patient and you did your due diligence in, in order to try to do the right thing. Levy, let's do this. There's a lot more I want to get into with you. I think that we definitely need to talk more about your life as an attending and how that transition was. I want to talk about burnout. I want to talk about your research interests. And I think we should talk about medical TV shows as well. Let's have you back. Let's pause the conversation for now and we'll get into everything. And maybe there'll be a part three and part four and you know, our high school could start promoting this podcast too. Definitely. But let's pause it. How does that sound? And we'll have you back pretty soon. That sounds tremendous to me. Thank you so much for having me on. And I, I look forward to coming back as well. Absolutely. This has been great. Thanks, Levy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Doctors Are People 2 podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to share it with your friends and family. Follow us on our Instagram page at Doctors or People 2 Podcast. Do you have a question or a comment on the show? Maybe a guest recommendation? Direct message us on our Instagram page. Until next time, this has been the Doctors or People 2 Podcast. 
Take care.